Hello, and welcome to the Paperclip Podcast. I'm Mehir Sharma of the Observer Research Foundation, and in this podcast, we are going to take a look together at the stories that matter to India and the world. Hello, and welcome to ORF's Paperclip Podcast with me, Mehir Sharma of the Observer Research Foundation. Here on Paperclip, as always, we look at the stories that matter to India and the world together. But we do it differently from how the morning paper would have. We try and explain what really lies behind them using cutting-edge research and commentary from around the world. In this installment of Paperclip, we're going to talk about the world economy, with a special focus on the geopolitical implications of the pandemic. We all know that the economic devastation wrought by the COVID-19 epidemic has been vast. Here in India, it has been, if anything, even more stark than in any other major economy. The International Monetary Fund, when it issued its predictions for the world economy and its world economic outlook, has made it quite clear that India is perhaps the worst off in terms of having its growth downgraded. The Indian government, or at least ruling party's internet warriors, have tried to tell us otherwise, but the IMF is quite clear on this. According to the IMF in its world economic outlook, emerging market and developing economies will see their economies contract by an average of 3.3% this year. In India, however, they say GDP will fall by more than 10%. Even the US will see a contraction of only 4.3% in comparison. This is very different from what happened the last time the world was hit by a recession. Even during the global financial crisis of 2008, India managed to post fairly decent growth. In fact, in the years immediately following the crisis, we posted our highest ever growth numbers, partly driven by a heavily stimulus package unleashed by the United Progressive Alliance government. Many analyses, in fact, suggest that India's contraction is itself enough to shave a percentage point or so off global growth, as opposed to the 0.5 percentage point it added to global growth in the year after the global financial crisis. This difference has serious implications for India's position in the world. The fact is, that being a crucial cog in the global growth engine helped cement India's position in the G20 and at the global high table in general in the years after 2008. Being just one of the crowd, and in fact worse off than most in the crowd in 2020, means one will unquestionably lose a bit of this stature. What has not changed, however, is that the People's Republic of China, which grew fast after 2008, will continue to be a growth beacon even during the COVID crisis. It is by now well understood that the first country to face the pandemic was the first also to emerge from it, and while it, at least in economic terms, and while it may not be operating at full capacity, Chinese economy seems to be quite close to it. It is due to grow at 2% in 2020, the only major economy to grow this year, and the IMF expects that it will bounce back to over 8% growth next year as well. In a world without growth, the countries that do grow get outsized rewards. One major comparison to the last crisis that is worth making is the question of where international capital is flowing. After the last crisis, emerging markets overall, including India, were a major destination for global capital. Portfolio funds flowed into emerging markets freely, growing by about 5% in the year after the crisis hit in September 2008. That has changed this year. Emerging markets have seen a back and forth of funds, but nothing yet like that solid inflow. Instead, the money has all flocked to China. 
sending its stock markets to record highs, for example. Chinese stocks and debt, reflecting that economy's outperformance during the pandemic, have basically mopped up all the cash that might have come to emerging markets in general. What does this mean? Remember, the more money that goes to China, the more difficult it actually becomes to decouple from it, whatever politicians might say. A prominent hedge funder based in the US, Ray Dalio of Bridgewater, became the unofficial spokesman for this large lobby of capitalists when he wrote a recent article for the Financial Times. He said that foreign investment in China needs to be increased, not by 5% or 20%, but by 400%. It should, he said, be a full five times more, accounting for 15% of global portfolio holdings and not 3%. In fact, he went so far as to accuse those who were not investing in China of anti-Chinese bias. He went on to say, and this is a direct quote, The US and China are also competing fiercely, some would say warring, over trade, technology, geopolitics, capital markets and military power. No one can know how bad these wars will be, which country will win or how. That is why I diversify and allocate money to both countries. In fact, Radialo went on to argue that China is more fundamentally sound than the US and so deserves an even larger share of global capital. Now, we can argue about whether Radialo is correct. Spoiler alert, he is not. But the fact is that Radialo represents the other facet of everything we may hear in the coming weeks and months about the urgent need to decouple from China. As far as capital and investment goes, the crucial question is returns. And some in the world of global capital believe that investing in China will provide those returns. Another spoiler alert, probably won't. The last crisis shook up the global world order in fundamental ways. It was the emergence of China, and to a lesser extent India, as global growth engines that led to a sense that the unipolar world order led by the US was on the way out. Even more than that, the apparent success of the People's Republic and its authoritarian polity and state-driven economy seemed to challenge the very basis of liberal democratic capitalism. That tension has been the fundamental ideological and geopolitical question of the last decade, and it probably will be for the next few decades as well. One way of looking at this pandemic, therefore, which began in China, is that it has woken the world up to the threat of overdependence on the Chinese economy. But then the other way of looking at it is that even though it began in China, only the Chinese economy seems to have recovered quickly enough. That is basically the viewpoint that Daleo and others are pushing. And the more money flows into China in the coming months and years, the stronger that pushback will get. The US, the Indian, Australian, European and Japanese governments can keep on trying to isolate Chinese technological giants or to minimize Chinese investment and intervention in their own economies. But as long as their own citizen savings flow in this manner into China, they are the people who will continue to finance the challenge that Beijing poses to their economies, their politics and their own ideological foundations. All that said, however, there is one other difference between 2020 and 2008 that deserves notice, and this also involves China. In 2008, Beijing's officials released a gargantuan stimulus package to ensure that the economy survived the global financial crisis. This stimulus was so large and so comprehensive, it had effects way beyond China. 
The economy of demand for raw materials, for example, became so strong in the wake of the Chinese stimulus that many developing countries that exported those materials found that their own economies were lifted up as a consequence. The Institute of International Finance has argued in a recent release that China is not repeating the very large 2009 infrastructure stimulus, which lifted commodity prices and the terms of trade for commodity exporting emerging markets, providing a growth boost at a time when this was sorely needed. The lack of a similar stimulus in 2020 is a key factor weighing on the recovery in non-China emerging market flows now. Think about what this means in terms of geopolitics. It seemed to many countries around the world at that point in 2009, 10, 11, that their own prosperity had become much more dependent on what Beijing did than on what any other foreign capital decided to do. Naturally, this meant China therefore required outsize influence on dozens of countries in the emerging world. This time, however, China's stimulus has been much smaller, on par with India's, in fact, in terms of the proportion of GDP that is being spent. And the effects of the stimulus this time around will primarily be felt domestically within China. So that outsized influence that Beijing held will begin to fade. Whether that loss of influence in the developing world will be sufficient to make up for Beijing's increased hold over global finance is far from clear. And in fact, that's going to be one of the things to watch in the coming months and years. This has been Paperclip from Mihir Sharma. And thank you for listening.